Hey, Nick. Hey, Nick. Hey. How are you? Uh, I'm well. Uh, coming off a busy, busy week of nights in the ICU, but... Um, yeah. You know, it's, it's, Nick, we're diving straight into this. We're diving straight in. <laughs> after last, after last week's, um, tr- what I would describe as tremendous success without me. Uh, <laughs> I think I think you were with us in spirit and for like a minute at the beginning before you disconnected. Yeah. Well, we're gonna try exact rerun, so I'm gonna leave you to Brian, you and Brian to it. Um, so, Nick, do you want to introduce yourself again? Yes. Um, so my name is Nick Mark. I'm a pulmonary critical care internist. I work as a critical care doc in Seattle, Washington. And it's hey, a Nick, pleasure, Nick. pleasure to be back. Yeah. You are the first repeat guest in the history of the Your Amigos podcast. So oh. congratulations. That's quite something. Something you'll tell your grandkids about someday, no doubt. <laughs> um, it's like winning two Academy Awards, right? Something well, like uh, that. Yeah, sort of. <laughs> <laughs> sort of. <laughs> So, Nick, good to have you back. As you know, I'm Brian Reaney with Tom Powell's. We're on a Your Amigos podcast focusing on COVID-related drugs uh, for the last week or so, uh, unfortunately. But we're fortunate to have Nick with us again. And first of all, thanks for your hard work on the front lines. I know I speak on behalf of all of us, thanking the front frontline healthcare workers who are out there, including yourself. Um, we wanted to talk about COVID therapeutics. So I know at my institution, I'm sure at yours, we're inundated with this drug, that drug, the other drug, this technique for COVID. And, and I know that personally and, and institutionally, Brian, we're trying... Before we, before we start, before we go on to Nick, yeah. can I ask you a question? So before we hear what Nick has to say about the detailed yeah. data, can I ask you what your institution's doing, what I would describe as off-label? Yeah, that's what I was just about to say before you interrupted me. I'm so pleased I'm so here. We're, so we've been struggling with, you know, what do we do? And I would say on two fronts, one is... We want to do prospective clinical trials, but obviously not every patient's going to fit and the urgency of treating people precludes that sometime. And so two, you know, what, what can we do outside of a trial? What's our pathway, our care path, if you will, for treating these patients? So at Vanderbilt, where we've come down is we're using hydroxychloroquine with all its limitations, which we should talk about in patients who have risk factors. So obviously PCR positive in the hospital with, you know, um, age above 60, comorbidities, et cetera, et cetera. I would say we're using that sporadically, not uniformly. Pre-ventilation. Yes, pre-ventilation for sure. We have uh, guidelines that are in evolution regarding tocilizumab and other anti-cytokines, but I don't think we've pulled the trigger on any patients yet. And everything else is in a big bag of being considered that, that we can talk about the different options today. Um, Nick, I've got a question for you. My, my folks in this neck of the woods say that they're not really prepared. This is, that's not fair. That what they're saying is they're very nervous about getting, giving any off-label treatment. So we've got tocilizumab and we've got hydroxychloroquine and we've got other drugs and we've got, of course, antivirals available to us. Um, but they're saying, you know, actually we should only be doing randomized trials because one of the problems with the Ebola outbreak is a whole series of sort of throwing mud at the wall took place and we ended up with nothing at the end. So there are purists out there who don't think we should be doing any of the things that Brian just said. What's your view on that? I think there's there's people who share that opinion um, in on this side of the pond as well. Uh, surprisingly, and I thought this was really interesting, Governor Cuomo in New York actually prohibited off-label use of some of these drugs, requiring patients to be in, enrolled in RCTs, which I, I'm, is a pretty, a pretty strong move by government. Um, I can totally understand why they're doing it, 
the the case volume in New York City at this point is sufficient that they could enroll one of these trials in like a day. So we could get the answers very quickly. Um, that said, you know, there's there is a there is a cost to doing that. It's much harder to enroll somebody in a trial than just to type the first couple letters of a drug into your EHR and order it. So I, I understand why people are reluctant. It requires some phone calls and some paperwork, et cetera. But I think your point is is exactly right, Tom. And I, sh I share that opinion, which is that if we don't do the studies, we'll never learn what works. And right now we're deciding between many different options and we don't know which ones to, to give. So I, I think even though it's a little bit painful and it's more work in an overworked time, I think doing RCTs is prudent. Yeah, I just wanted to say, I mean, I, I agree with studying things. I don't think everything has to be randomized and placebo controlled. I mean, just like in our cancer world, we can do, we can learn things from single arm trials from, you know, other novel designs. So I, I agree sort of in principle, but I would probably back off that a little bit and say there are other ways to do controlled trials that aren't necessarily randomized. But I agree with that, Brian. I mean, for example, there's a randomized trial that's going to open the UK. Their ambition is to recruit only five patients. And so that's, you know, and, and, uh, and we have a track record of a series of different ways of exploring data. And in fact, in the cancer world, we're quite interested in real world data to support the randomized trial. Right. Because randomized trials have a lot of have a lot of strengths, but they also have shortcomings, mainly around what we describe as perfect patient selection, the 45 inclusion criteria, 25 exclusion criteria. Is that most patients? Probably not. So I think there needs to be a balance. And I'm just not convinced that the all out only randomized trials or. Or just throw the mud at the wall and hope for the breast. I think in cancer we have managed to come up with quite a happy medium, and I think that's one of the very few Agreed. contributions we can make. Can we can we go into specific drugs? I wanted to talk about specific drugs and some of the data around them, and so maybe we can start with the antivirals. So this would be you know remdesivir and the like. Remdesivir is in a big trial now. Um, Nick, do you have experience with this? What oh, do you think about this approach? Yeah, so I've given remdesivir to several patients. Um, it's it's an exciting drug. You know, as, as I understand it, it was originally developed, it's a nucleoside analog. It was originally developed for treatment of Ebola and didn't really, didn't really succeed there. Uh, it's not FDA approved, but it is available both as part of an expanded access program and as part of two manufacturer initiated trials. Um, and I've put patients on uh, those trials. Do you want to describe those trials to us? Yes. So um, basically, the, there, there's two trials. One is enrolling patients with moderate severity disease, and the other is enrolling patients with high severity disease. Uh, basically, the inclusion criteria is non-pregnant adults who have low oxygen saturations or uh, are on a ventilator, respectively. And then uh, they uh, exclude people who have elevation of liver enzymes or severe kidney disease. The, the rationale for this is there was this paper in Nature which found that uh, treating an in vitro model with remdesivir uh, inhibited viral activity. And then there was a really just a case report of one individual who uh, was the first U.S. patient with coronavirus here in Washington State who was treated with it. Mm. And notably, that person 
had non-serious COVID, only requiring supplemental O2, so not like the patients um, keeping me up at night in the ICU, but that patient did do very well on remdesivir. So it's unclear, it's unclear how much of that was, whether that individual was lucky or whether it was that this drug was highly effective. But the good news is that there are several trials ongoing right now to, to, to sort that out. Yeah. And I know those trials are accruing quite well. We just opened that here and treated our first patient. And I think it's at least a third accrued, if not half accrued. So hopefully answers soon. Um, other antivirals. So there was the lapinavir, atanavir, lapinavir, atanavir, New England Journal, obviously, which was disappointed, disappointing results. And are there other antivirals out there that are but being Brian, tried? Before we move on from there, do we need to say that actually some of the phase two data with those drugs looked okay? And is this an example where actually the randomized trials do turn out to be important? For sure. And I, I think, yeah, I think I some critics of that uh, NEJAM paper would argue that it was underpowered and that it might be worthwhile to look at more data. And I think there are other trials that are still going on. So there may be a, you know, a, a, quick, a quickly executed meta-analysis that may, that may shed more light on this too. Fair enough. Um, how about let's go down the hydroxychloroquine plus before we before we do there's one other antiviral I would mention um, sure there was a lot of use of oseltamivir uh, which is a neuraminidase inhibitor it's FDA approved for flu this was widely used in China right and there's been no evidence of efficacy either in vitro or in vivo that I've seen so I think I think there's a there's a consensus from a lot of professional organizations not to use this because it it can cause side effects. So the clinical data around retroviral uh, anti antivirals is pretty weak, right? If in some as yet, I mean, we, you haven't said anything that's really been terribly impressive. In vitro data, an anecdote here or there, but nothing that's. I think that sums it up perfectly. Convincing, yeah, convincing, yeah. All right, are we ready to tackle hydroxychloroquine since it's being used a lot, at least in the U.S. and, and azithromycin? So I think last time we may have talked about, or maybe not on this podcast, the. The initial French report of 20 patients that just showed viral load reduction. There was just a updated publication of 80 patients with some clinical data, which and I believe all 80 got the combination. And the the publication is a little confusing, but I believe all 80 got the combination. And I believe that was um, a preprint. It's not yet published. It's a pre. Yeah, correct. This is just you know as information is coming at us rapidly. So t take us through that study. Obviously, there's been a lot of talk about that. As I mentioned, we're kind of using at least hydroxychloroquine alone in our pathway, as I think a lot of people are, but but somewhat reluctantly. So yeah, tell so us me, about that. Let me that step back for data. just a little yeah. bit and say that, so there's chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine. They're both FDA approved. They're both widely available. There was the Nature paper by Wong et al. that found that chloroquine had in vitro activity against the 2019 novel coronavirus. Then... Um, that has been looked at. There's been a lot of excitement about that. As you mentioned, there was the uncontrolled 20-person French study where they basically took people who, at one institution who were treated with hydroxychloroquine. So remember, chloroquine was the one that was studied in vitro. They were using hydroxychloroquine because it was what was available. As a control group, they used patients who refused to be in the study and kind of selected patients from another center. Um, the endpoint that they looked at was they did nasopharyngeal swabs daily to measure viral load. And what they found was that in a non-pre-specified subgroup of patients who happened to be getting both hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin, there was a faster decrease in the viral carriage. Um, 
So I would I would say that that you know that's a non-randomized, not really controlled study right. looking at a not patient-centered endpoint that hinged upon a non-pre-specified subgroup. So lots of caveats to that study. <laughs> Using a drug which actually wasn't the in vitro, in vivo drug. That's right. Using another drug that even though it, it contained the name of the other drug was not the same it, drug. Yes. And on top of that, I'm told the dosing of the original in, vit in vitro work was um, not really appropriate outside of a, uh, an, an animal type model. Um, that makes that kind of story quite concerning without randomization is that fair? i think so yes and and one other point to raise here which is that you know several several colleagues of mine have treated patients with toxicities related to this some of that has happened in people outside of the hospital who took this uh this um, but it's also happened not at my not at my institution, but elsewhere in the country. People have had serious complications of taking hydroxychloroquine. It can have effects on prolonging the QT interval. And I know of at least one or two cases where patients were treated with it off label for this and developed um, ventricular tachycardia. So it even though it is a widely available, widely used drug, and I think the rheumatologists very seldom even check a QTC when they initiate it in an otherwise healthy person, um, it is a potentially risky drug in, in some people. Yeah, and there have been some notable deaths from, you know, people doing crazy things even outside the hospital with this drug. Um, did you see that updated report of the 80 patients treated with both I, I have been very much an intensivist this week, so I'm a little... So I did see it, Brian, Brian, I did see it, and I can help a bit with that. This is a classic example of a salami publication in the oncology world, where the original 20, because the results are so good, even if there's a dilution subsequently, the results will continue to be impressive, firstly. There was some clarity about what happened to some of the subsequent patients. Mm -hmm. As you know, some were removed and some were, were, weren't represented in the original cohort. There is a bit of clarity about, about the addition of azithromycin that seemed very ad hoc. But when I pull it together, what I see is more of the same. And my concern around it is we need to see data from different groups. Yeah, I agree. Before we actually build. So I'd say the original 20 is promising. The additional work doesn't actually make me any more confident than the original 20, and we desperately need to see different work. The other problem of this is if we focus all our efforts on areas that look promising based on one publication, which then has a salami publication associated with it, we may end up with our limited resource going down the wrong avenue. And I'm sorry, I've never heard the term salami publication. What does that mean? <laughs> oh, that means you, oh, I've, you've done it many times in your <laughs> career, Brian. <laughs> I'll tell you about it afterwards. So essentially, you start with the original cohort, you publish the first 20 pa patients, and then you publish 30 and then 40. I see. Then you publish the, the translational work and then the long-term, you know. Oh, yeah, I do that all the time. Yeah. Yes, so let me read to you. I have that paper in front of me. It's you. the kind of thing that makes your department chair very happy, exactly. but makes your reviewers very unhappy. And, and I agree with you, Tom, everything you said. It's still preliminary. There's been some question about the investigators and things they've done in the past that aren't particularly forthright. I'm going to read to you everything that this paper says about adverse effects. And I quote, adverse effects were rare and minor, end quote. That's it. So a lot of, a lot of data missing. And obviously that, that kind of data would never make it through a rigorous peer review. So we'll, we'll see. It was interesting that there's new data, but I agree we, we need more. And there is a randomized trial, placebo-controlled randomized trial that's about to start of note with that agent.
Is it time to move on yep. to the immune, immune therapy? Yeah, so let's, immune modulating yeah let's talk about anti-cytokine therapies. We, on our previous podcast with Nick, we talked a lot about tocilizumab, so we can touch on that, but maybe some of the other anti-IL-6 antibodies and anakinra, which is an anti-IL-1 agent. Nick, tell us what you know about those and any relevant data. So um, I, disclosure, I've used tocilizumab for treating some of these patients. I haven't used any of these other agents sure. for COVID. Um, I'm aware that there are several other drugs in the IL-16, uh, sorry, the IL-6 blocking class. So for example, cerilimab, and there's at least one other. Um, there's some potential pharmacodynamic reasons why these may work better, blocking the, the um, uh, IL-6 directly versus the receptor. I don't think there's any studies that really tell us which one would be better. I think there's great, there's great reason to be hopeful about them, but I don't think there's any clear published data as yet to, to really tell us definitively that these are effective. Um, just to sort of sum up what we talked about last time. Yeah, just And, Ro and Roger ahead. has a company-sponsored randomized phase three in this environment. And I know that there's this Italian cohort study of 300 patients. Correct. Um, and so one would imagine that we'll get results in this population relatively soon. Can I just ask a more broad question? Um, antivirals are best given, I imagine, early in the disease process. You, do you need to give the immune modulating drugs? Do they need to? Do they need to be given very late, or should they also be given pre-ventilation? And or do we not know the answer to that question yet? I, I think theoretically, there's there's benefit to giving many of these treatments early because, in theory, they would limit the inflammation, which is causing lung damage. That said, putting on my intensivist hat. I can tell you a very nice reason why controlling fever can be helpful, which is that fever causes you to consume more oxygen. For every one degree increase in uh, body temperature measured in Celsius, there's a 15% increase in oxygen required. And what that means is that if you have a patient who's on mechanical ventilation, who is spiking fevers, it can be extremely challenging to liberate them from the ventilator. You can give them therapies like um, Tylenol or paracetamol in the UK, and you can control their fever. That can help. Um, one of the most exciting things about the IL-6 blockers in COVID, to me at least, is that they seem to be very effective at causing patients with COVID to defervesce, which actually can be helpful in its own right. Yeah, for no other reason to get them off the vent, right, as we face a shortage. Exactly. Yeah. And do you know anything about the about IL-1 physiology, pathophysiology and ARDS? I so... I'm not, I'm not so familiar with it in ARDS. I have given it to intubated patients before. Um, I've had a couple of patients in the past who have had things like a gout flare while they were, in, while they were intubated with sepsis. And in kind of a similar vein, reducing inflammation can make it easier to lighten their sedation. Um, controlling their fever can make it easier to liberate them from the ventilator. So there's a theoretical reason that these agents could be helpful. Um, I'm not aware of any published evidence for anakinra, which is an IL-1 receptor blocker for treating COVID. Yeah, no, I'm not either. We've been, been talking about it, though, in part because that it's, at least at our institution, more plentiful than TOSI is in terms of supply. But I think that varies by institution. But we're, we're talking a lot about these anti-cytokines, again, trying to figure out what the sweet spot is, as the question Tom was getting at. Using them really early is just not going to work, but but using them too late probably is not a good idea either. So. Uh, be interesting as that data starts to mature. I think we're before we wrap go ahead, up, Tom. we go because we got two minutes, I guess. 
just there are some big studies. There's a WHO forearm study, Solidarity. Um, there are some European type trials um, that are ongoing with adaptive type designs, bringing new arms in. Um, what does the, the the landscape look like in, can I say, three or four weeks time? I know these trials are recruiting very quickly. Um, when are we likely to get some robust answers? Where are they likely to come from first? Um, and and will we be able to, um, what will we be able to do with the information? That's a great question. I, I think the, the rate at which we're learning about how to treat this disease is truly astonishing. I mean, I'm, I'm looking at this nice summary of clinical trials data about COVID. Um, I'll share it with you after we get off, but looking at the number of new trials per week, and it's basically a log increasing number of new studies that are initiating. The other thing which has been really exciting is just how quickly these studies are going from idea to IRB to enrolling to finished, to preprints, to published. I mean, we're, there's been this amazing acceleration of the process. So um, there are, I think, currently 18 studies looking at hydroxychloroquine, chloroquine, 16 studies looking at lopinavir, ritonavir, 11 studies looking at that the IL-6 agents, six looking at remdesivir, oh, sorry, nine looking at remdesivir. So there's a huge amount of studies which are, which are going on right now. And I think any day we're gonna see some of these start to come out. So it's it's like if you look away for a minute, the landscape changes. Very exciting. Brian, you've got time for one more question. So my, I have a comment and a question. So the comment is exactly what you just said, Nick, is that, you know, Tom and I have discussed, we hope this sort of, in a post-COVID world, this urgency around clinical research continues. We don't want it to be dire, but some of this, some of the barriers have come down. And I think we're making progress faster than we normally do. That's the comment. The question is about things that Tom and I know nothing about, which is things like proning ventilated patients and the other sort of, I would say, tricks that you guys do as intensivists. It's, we only have a minute, but you know, can you tell yeah. us the most promising or what's being applied to, to these COVID patients? So this is actually a great positive note for us to end on because there, there really has been tremendous progress over the last two decades in treating ARDS. And ARDS is caused by many things. Vi viral pneumonia, such as COVID, is just one of them. Um, I'll give you a very quick rundown, and then um, we can share with your listeners um, a summary of this. Or I, I'm actually going to put something on my website shortly so they can read more. But the kind of the biggest interventions, the most effective interventions are something called lung protective ventilation, which is a ventilator strategy of using PEEP to keep the lungs open and low tidal volumes to avoid causing additional um, volume trauma or barrow trauma. And this was a New England Journal paper back in 2000 that was stopped early for benefit. It reduced mortality from 40 to 31% in people with ARDS. So number needed to treat of 11 to save a life. The other two really exciting, more recent developments, one is prone positioning. So this is where you take advantage of the fact that you actually have more lung posteriorly than anteriorly. And when you lie on your back, that dependent part of the lung tends to get more um, edematous. So you can flip the person over um, and improve oxygenation. And there was a great French study in 2013, also published in the journal, that reduced mortality from 32 to 16 percent, or a number needed to treat of six to save a life. Finally, we found that by giving neuromuscular blockers um, to prevent the person from moving, you both decrease how much oxygen they're consuming and you make them more synchronous with the ventilator. And this similarly uh, reduced 90-day 90 mor mortality by about 9% in a large, well-conducted study. So 
The good news is that there are many interventions that work for ARDS that have made a big difference in overall mortality. Even though we're still trying to figure out which COVID specific therapies there are, there are lots of things that we can do in the ICU that help for the complication that COVID causes, which is ARDS. And these techniques you mentioned, I assume, are being applied to COVID patients. But Correct. Because they have ARDS. Now, so. I Exactly. I think that the challenge that we're going to see in the weeks ahead as the volume ramps up here in the U.S. and also in the U.K. is it takes um, time and some expertise to do these yeah. things. And so, you know, I this last week I had the privilege of working with an amazing team of other docs and ICU nurses and respiratory therapists. You need the people in order to do these things. It's not just about the ventilators. Yeah. Um, And so we we have to make sure to protect ourselves because we are the scarce resource. Yeah. And not every hospital will have that team and that ability to do all those things that you just mentioned. Correct. Correct. Though one of the exciting things, also, if we're think if we're sort of thinking about how this can reshape the the lands the landscape, um, is there may be opportunities to do more telemedicine. Sure. So telecritical care. Somebody in a small community hospital can call up me or one of my colleagues and say, "Hey, help me with this." Yeah. And that's an exciting way forward sure. as well. Tom, Nick, we're going to draw a line under this. Um, we're going to invite you back after the first positive randomized trial. <laughs> okay. Uh, which uh, we hope is only <laughs> maybe maybe um, never. <laughs> I, I'm positive about this. I think we're going to find some stuff. I hope we are. I and mean, there's so much work going on. Um, thank you so much for your time and all the work that you're doing. Yeah. Um, best of luck. And all right. Thanks. Nick. Appreciate it. Thanks, you, Tom. Take care.